Today, we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes, and in case it is your first time here, just to give you a little context, uh, the Beatitudes is a, a portion of scripture, um, and it's actually the beginning of one of the biggest sermons, the longest sermons that Jesus ever taught, and it's in Matthew chapter 5 is where it starts. And he is kind of, he's like sitting up on a hill and he's speaking to all of these people. And what he's really doing is laying out what it looks like to be the ideal Christian, the ideal Christ follower. Uh, in, our, in our culture, we use the word Christian in a lot of different ways. You know, I'm a Christian this, I'm a Christian that, I was born in a Christian home, I am a Christian. But it's not always attached to uh, what we believe and it's not always attached to our actions. And so Jesus is taking, you know, all these people, oh, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Can you imagine as he's teaching and healing people and beginning this ministry, he's got people that are beginning to follow him. And so he basically is like, hey, you guys are all hanging out. It's a big crowd of people. I want to kind of let you guys know what it looks like to actually be a disciple. Like this is what it really means. And so for us, it means the same thing. It means the same thing. A lot of us today, we call ourselves a Christian. For some of you, you might be kind of on the fence um, I'm not naive to the fact that there's many people who are struggling in their faith, many people who are not sure if they still believe what they used to believe when they were young. Uh, you know, all, there's all these, there's just, just a big spectrum going on with all of us in this room today and you watch it online. And, and so whenever we read the words of Jesus, I think that Jesus shoots the gap on a lot of things. He brings us together, he aligns us, he focuses. So all of our arguments or all of our ideas don't really matter whenever we look at what he actually said. And the Beatitudes are sort of one of those things. Now, many of us have heard the Beatitudes, which, which Beatitudes means blessed. We've heard these taught a certain way or we take them at face value. But the, the way that Jesus is actually teaching these is from a different angle. So we think, you know, blessed are these people, blessed are these people. But then he says these words that create tension, like blessed are the poor in spirit. Like that, blessed are the poor. That doesn't really make sense. But we've been digging into what those words actually mean. And so I hope it's been helpful for those of you who have been kind of paying attention and, and coming. If you haven't seen some of the past teachings, I would encourage you to go and look at those so you kind of know what we're, uh, what we're talking about here. But today we're going to be leaning into verse 8. Where it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, I have a really obvious question. You don't have to respond. Please don't respond, but just think your response. Do you want to see God? Do, do you actually want to see God? And I don't just mean like the Christian response, okay? <laughs> yeah, of course I want to see God. I mean, do you anticipate seeing God? Is there something in you that's pulling you into something else? Like something in this temporary life that's pulling you into the eternal? Like, do you want to see God? I think in a believer's life, there should be an anticipation for that. But I think at times we're tethered to this life. We're tethered to our family. We're tethered to our career. We're tethered to just entertainment and the things that we like. A lot of us, if, if I actually asked you, do you love this life? You would say yes. And honestly, to a certain extent, I would say yes. 
I do. I love my family. I love my girls. I got a couple, you know, young girls, and, and I love my family. I, I, love, I love my life. I, I love the things that we get to do. I, I love golf, okay? I like to play golf. I, I mean, there's things that we enjoy, but that's like on this plane. I'm talking about the, the, the higher plane. I'm talking about that next level. Is there a, something in your heart? It's like a beacon, that's calling you into something more. And, and so that's the kind of anticipation I'm talking about when I ask you, do you want to see God? And I believe in a believer's life that there should be an anticipation to see God. It, it also, it anchors us to something in the storm, but it also anchors us to something even in success whenever we're just on top of the mountain that says, yeah, I know this is good, but there's something greater. You see what I'm saying? And so I think that we need to kind of look at this, for they shall see God part of the scripture first. And, and look at what the Bible says about those who will actually see God. Now, again, I believe that most of us would say that we all want to see God. But I don't know that all of us would anticipate uh, seeing God. But there's a theme in the Bible of people who see God or those who will see God. And it's dependent upon this word, holiness. Holiness. The Bible says that those who see God are holy. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone, which we could preach on that for about an hour right now. Strive for peace with everyone. But it says also, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, it kind of went from this, this temporary thing, strive for peace, to strive with holiness so that you can see God. All throughout scripture, we see where people wanted to see God. We see where Moses saw the backside of God and it made him glow for a few days. You know, we, we see people get changed whenever they come in contact with God. Why? Because he is holy, holy. And holiness is a word that we really only use in some sort of negative way nowadays, usually in a judgmental way, like, oh, they just think they're, you know, holier than thou or, oh, you're so holy. And we almost downplay it as a negative whenever the Bible says we're supposed to strive for that. So let's kind of redefine that word and not just use it in a negative sense. Let's actually look at it. The Bible says God is holy. So that, that's a good thing. But the thing is that God calls us and, and, and wants us to strive to be holy. Now, holiness is this. Holiness is a cutting off or separation from what is unclean. A consecration, which is a word we don't use too much, but a consecration or, or being set apart to what is pure, being set apart to what is clean. And God wants us to be cut off from what is unclean and set apart for what is pure, for what is clean. Now, a lot of people, I think, whenever I say this, first off, you don't feel worthy to be someone to be holy. And you would be right about that. Uh, none of us are worthy in and of ourselves to be called holy. So the, the playing field is, imp, uh, is uh, the, the playing field is neutralized here. It's flattened out. So so put that thought aside for this message. All right. None of us are worthy in and of ourselves. But God has called us to be holy and pure and clean. And also God is holy, and so therefore He doesn't welcome unholiness in His presence. It's sort of a, an elite place, okay? He doesn't allow unholiness in his presence. If we look back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it says that they would, men would, they would walk with God in the Garden of Eden, and uh, there was a, a, a sense of his presence, obviously. They were with him. 
And then whenever sin entered the equation, it splintered that, it, it fragmented that relationship to where they could no longer stand in the presence of God in their own self. They were not worthy. Why? They were stained by sin. And so God calls us to be holy in order to, be into, uh, to enter into his presence. And if you, if you know the Old Testament, then there's a whole lot of types and shadows and examples that we could give of this. But I think there's a group of scriptures that sort of helps us understand this concept a little bit better. And it's uh, from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Unequally yoked, we've talked about that before, but it has to do with sort of the picture of maybe two oxen that are, that are uh, uh, yoked together, and there's one that's stronger than the other, and so the weaker one kind of has to follow, right? But they both affect one another, and he's saying an unbeliever and a believer, if they're yoked together, if they're partnered together in fellowship with one another, like, that's not very cohesive, you know? And, and so what fellowship do these people have with one another? What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, I want to say this. Paul is not teaching some sort of isolationist uh, mentality in regards to believers being completely separate from unbelievers and like, you know, oh, don't, don't come near me. That, that's not what he's talking about here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, some people take that and they get very, very holy. <laughs> and that's what that means. But that's not, that's not the lifestyle that he's talking about. Um, but he says, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so if you take this picture of the temple in the Old Testament, it was a, a consecrated place, okay? It was a holy place. There was a holy place. There was a holy of holies, a, a place in the tabernacle where the presence of God would reside. There was the Ark of the Covenant, different things like that. And, and we're not studying the temple today to go deeper. But th there's this, this idea, and we see it with the temple. And then he says, you are the temple. Because of Jesus, you, you are the temple of God. And so we actually house the presence of God as believers. We are the temple of God. And so it matters who we are and how we are and how we act, all of these things. Why? Because we're the temple of God. And we're set apart to be holy, to be set apart for the use of, of, of whatever God would like to use us for. We go on to verse... Um, uh, to verse uh, 16, what agreement has the temple of God? For we are the temple of the living God. These next verses are sort of like a compilation of Old Testament scriptures as well. And he says this, as God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So therefore, because of this, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1 goes on. He says, since we have these promises, because of these verses, because for us, because of these verses, these prophecies, because of the word of the, of the Lord, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So in response to God's love, mercy, and holiness, let's strive towards holiness. Now, we lean heavily into the mercy and the grace of God. We, we sing about that. We talk about that. And, and we need to because it's who God is, okay? It's, it's, but, but some people, 
they gravitate to this side of the mercy and the grace and the love of God in their understanding of what those words mean. And for whatever reason, it causes them to also live in an unholy way, in a way that's displeasing to God. But yet any time that there's a, a rebuttal or a conviction or someone says, hey, that's really not maybe the way that we should live, there's this, this, well, hey, don't judge me, God's mercy, his grace, God just loves, all this kind of stuff. And they actually, by saying that, misunderstand what God's mercy and grace and love is all about. And our culture has a problem with this. And so there's not a lot of conversations around the holiness of God. Because it begins to make us feel unworthy because, again, we look at who we are in, in comparison to who God is, and there's always going to be a gap. But we need, to, we need to talk about it. We need to lean into it. We need to ask the hard questions about our life and who we are. The Bible talks about it a lot. But it's in response to God's mercy and love and holiness that we strive towards holiness. And I think that's the thing. The Bible talks about striving for holiness, striving towards the mark, right? Like we're in this race and it's not a striving to receive uh, or to uh, appease the wrath of God, if you will. The wrath of God has been appeased on the cross. However, there is a, a natural draw for believers to come into alignment with, with the word. We talked about hungering and thirsting after righteousness a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about your spiritual appetite and what you, what you desire. And over time... God begins to change your desires from desiring things that are unholy to desiring holy things. I want you to think about this in your life. I mean, obviously we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but, but it's the same thing with holiness. It's, it's like if you eat junk food all the time, obviously your body adjusts to that, but you also like desire that. And so healthy things... You don't like the way they taste. You don't like, you don't like that because you want that high from that sugar or that caffeine or whatever it is that you're, that you're indulging in. But over time, as you detox from those things and you begin to drink more water and you begin to eat right, you actually begin to love what it makes you feel like. Make sense? Even if you're not there right now, you've probably felt that at some point in your life, okay? Now you love Cheetos too much. I don't know. But... But there was that moment, and you're like, man, I feel clean. It's the same exact thing with desiring the things of God. And, and Scott talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Whenever we fill our life and our time and our heart with unholy things, did you know that it really, like, displaces desires and it displaces the capacity for you to even hunger and thirst after righteousness and therefore have a pure heart and be, be clean in your mind? And that appetite, you begin to draw closer and closer to it until for a lot of people, they enter into a breaking point at some point where they, they, they hit rock bottom. I'm not talking about rock bottom financially or something like that. I'm talking about rock bottom here in your heart, in your purpose. Did you guys know that God designed us to operate a certain way? And his word leads us and guides us into a lifestyle that is better for us but gives him honor and glory. His rules and his regulation and his standard of holiness that some people set is not to lord over you. It's not to be a, 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 a hammer on your head. It's to lift you up. 
But you have got to have that perspective of the holiness of God, that he's calling you into something that you actually desire, but you might just not know it yet. Did you know that you actually desire to be holy? You actually desire to be accepted by God. You desire unconditional love. You desire the grace of God. You desire the peace of God. But we try to find those things in other areas, and it just leads to more heartbreak. It really does. For they shall see God. Those who are holy will see God. And that's kind of the the second part of the scripture. But I want to lean for a little while into the first part of the scripture. Blessed are the pure in heart. Because we want to see God. We know that there's holiness that is involved. And holiness is this sort of like this umbrella. But being pure in heart, it brings us back to us individually. And I think one of the... uh, you know, main scriptures that we read or, or talk about a lot when it comes to being pure in heart is uh, Psalm 24, verse 3. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? We just talked about that, the holy place, a part of the tabernacle, but for us today represents the presence of God. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean, pure. Um, it means undefiled. It means blameless. It means unstained, uncontaminated, free from contamination, clean and pure. This is who God wants us to be. And this is who God says who will experience the fullness of who he is. What does hands mean though? Hands refers to our actions, to the things that we do, the things that we do. And it's, it's talking about righteous actions. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. And again, none of this is a, you don't have to nod. You can just stare at me blankly so you don't have to show any guilt or, or whatever, okay? But I, I want you to think about your actions right now. I want you to think about the works of your hands, what you do, what you say, what, what people would see, okay, the things that you do. And in Galatians chapter 5, and you can go read this later, but Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. And how these two things, our flesh and the Spirit of God, they're at odds with one another. And if we are living according to the flesh, there are certain things that we do, certain actions that we will be a part of. But if we live by the Spirit, the fruit of that is that we do not live according to the the flesh anymore. We are not led by the flesh. Now, what is not being taught here is perfectedness in this life. And this is where some people get condemned. But I want us to look at this and feel conviction. Conviction. And attached to conviction is love and hope and grace and mercy. Attached to condemnation is nothing but guilt and shame and fear. So we're not in the fear lane over here, okay? We're talking about this in the, in the love lane, okay? In God's, the, the way that God actually wants us to see it. But we have to look at our lifestyle. So I have some questions for you. And I'm going I'm to ask some questions surrounding works of the flesh. First question is this. Do I lie? I'll, I'll put it this way too. Do I bend the truth? Okay. Okay. That, that, there, was a, there was like two people that said, yes, I lie. And there was about 200 that were like, oh, okay, bending the truth. <laughs> we're good at justifying. Do I steal? Do I steal? Do I borrow things for long periods of time and never actually return them? (laughs) 
Y'all see what we're doing here, right? Because this is how we this is how we do it. Do I hate? Do I hate? Do I have rage? These are all works of the flesh. Do I hate people? When is the last time that I said I I hate them? And for some of you, you're like, oh, I hate you know cheese or whatever. But but no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do I hate people? Do I, am I enraged by things? The, the heat on the back of the neck, you know what I'm saying, where your scalp kind of tingles, you know what I'm saying? Your heart's like, poof, poof, poof. Do I have rage in me? Do I manipulate? Do I manipulate people? Do I, do I, do I manipulate them through fear? Do I manipulate them through raising my voice and, and being domineering? Or do I manipulate by, by always being the one that's, you know, the victim? Do I always manipulate from, like, because you can manipulate from all spectrum, okay? Do I manipulate people? Am I, this is the next question, am I divisive? The, the people that I'm around, am I bringing division to those relationships? Am I a unifier or am I, divide, am I divisive? Am I jealous? What I have, I'm scared somebody's going to take. Do, I, do I, I grip onto the things that I have? Am I not generous, basically? Do, do, am, I, am I selfishly ambitious? Is it about my thing? Is it about my direction? Is it about what I want? And if anybody impedes upon that progress, I mean, I disown them. Am I selfishly, am I, am I climbing the ladder of success in my business so much that I will kind of step into the first question here, lying and stealing and, and manipulating certain things? Am I selfishly ambitious? Am I envious? Do I get upset with people because of what they have? Because really I want it. And do I resent them for having what I really want? They have that family. They have that house. They have that opportunity. And do I resent them for it? The third question, the last question is, do I practice sexual immorality? If you're wondering what that, that is, sexual immorality is, is any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Am I engaged in activity? Am, 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 is that part of my lifestyle? Do I practice drunkenness? Is that part of my life? I'm not talking about having a couple of drinks. I'm talking about it's part of your life to where, number one, you might not feel complete unless you have a drink. You're filling your heart with something in order to numb the pain of something that's really going on. And, and the Bible says that all of these things are works of the flesh, that they are leading us down a path. Maybe not initially. It's not like you get mad one time and God turns his face from you forever. But, but leading a life, it leads to death. The Bible talks about that a lot. There's, there's a path that leads to death. And there's a path that leads to, to, to righteousness and holiness and life. And the question is, what path are you on? I have no clue what path you're on. It's not about me knowing. It's about you knowing and you having an understanding and a proper perspective of what it is. Am I taking these works of the flesh and am I justifying myself with them? Well, I just, get, I just get mad every now and then. I have an anger problem. Okay, yeah. Okay, but like what, 
Like to what degree? Is that something that you are in the process of repenting from and, and, and coming up against? Or is it something that you've accepted as just part of who you are and people better like it or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Well, this is just who I am. I'm going to cuss you out every now and then. You just got to get over it. Okay. God's grace is good, right? Yes, it is. But you're saying that in a way that feels like you're going to continue to cuss me out. You know, like, I feel a little scared of you now, you know. I, I don't know. These are questions that you have to ask yourself about living a pure life, pure hands. But then there's the next part. A pure heart, a clean heart. The first one refers to what you do, clean hands, but this refers to who you are. The deep core part of you. And I believe that our actions flow out of our heart. I believe that our heart informs our actions. And so I don't think they're like completely separate. But I will say that there are, and, and I think everybody in this room, everybody watching, like we, we understand this. There's times whenever we do or say something and, you know, it really didn't represent what you felt inside. You, you might have lost your cool. You might have said something. You might have did something. And then you look back and there's regret and there's shame. And you're like, that, that's not what I feel right now. That's not, and we say this, that's not who I am. And I believe there's some truth to that. I think we have to be, have attention in that and say, well, no, that's, I, I did say that. <laughs> I did do that. And so obviously that is who I am. Maybe I wasn't aware of who I was deep down inside, but that was. But at the same time, there is a tension here. And it's deeper than just action. I'm talking about a pure heart. It's deeper than a, a visible purity of behavior because some people are really, really slick. <laughs> They're really good. They, they never lose their cool. Honestly, I'm a little nervous with, with being around somebody who I feel like I never actually get to who they are. Like I never, you never see them upset, but it's not in a holy way. It's almost like in a manipulative way. Maybe you're the only one that gets upset because they've got you wrapped around their finger and they're the ones that are pointing you in different directions and manipulating you, right? And they just always end up being right. But people can do that and it doesn't mean that their heart is pure. We look on the outside, y'all. We look at how people act, and we judge everything accordingly. And that's always going to be a, a certain part of our life. But, but 1 Samuel says that God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, at the heart. And the heart is where our motives are at. The heart is where our thoughts and our desires and our will and our understanding and our character come from. That's why I say it's the core of who we are. And we can look really good on the outside and be rotten on the inside. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all went to cruising the coast last week. Uh, it was a fun time, and we rode all over the place. We went straight into the traffic, and just we just did it. We had the full experience, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so we went on a Saturday. We went to Bay St. Louis. We were walking around. And as we were leaving, I mean, obviously, we're looking at the cars and stuff. And I know nothing about cars, so I'm just like, that, that's a pretty car right there. You know, <laughs> just like... Like, we had, like, our favorite color car. I mean, who does that? Well, when you know nothing about cars, you're like, ah, oh, that's that green. My goodness. It's really, it's got sparkles in it, too, man. This is amazing. I mean, that's all we had. But um, <laughs> as we were leaving, I mean, all the cars looked great. And, and we rolled by this one car. And it was, it was, like, mint and green and white. And it was, I don't know what kind of car it was. It was a big one, though. And, um, <laughs> and so... 
Um, we drive by it, and this thing looked awesome, but its hood was up. And there was a table next to it, and it was a couple guys. And they're like, there was half of the engine on the table, right? I mean, the thing is just torn apart. They're probably from, like, Michigan or something like that. And now, you know, what, what did they do? All day trying to fix the car. Why? The car looked awesome on the outside, but the engine was broken. That's like our heart, y'all. We can have everything rolling just right. We got the right job. We got the right family situation. We got the right financial situation. I don't know. We just, everything's right. And, like, there's, uh, there, there's the conditions around us are right. But internally, until there's resistance, we don't actually know what the engine is made of. And what happens is people are like, I didn't know that was in me. Well, here's the deal. The conditions, the environment in your life were so ideal that the deep part of you was never tested. And then when everything hit the fan, whenever tension was applied, whenever you had to go on that long trip in life, you went through that long situation, your engine was tested. Your heart is being tested. And that's whenever we begin to see things. And did you know the whole time God knew that your engine was messed up? You might have not known it. The people around you sure didn't know it, but then all of a sudden things start happening. Why? Because your heart was sick. Your heart was sick. And God's like, hey, what you do matters, believe me. But who you are internally, that's what I'm looking at. So how is your heart? How is your heart? The question is, how do I become pure in heart? How do I become pure in heart? Because I, I believe that all of us, we want to be pure. We want to be holy. Again, I said it earlier. I think we have this deep desire inside of us that, that especially believers, that we, we want to draw closer to God. And the Bible says that, that we must draw close to him. But as we draw closer to him, that's where we become more pure and we become more holy. And we, you know, it's, it's a natural process. But how do I become pure in heart? First thing, purity begins as a result of believing that Jesus died in your place to ransom you from impurity. If you do not start there, then you can only start with your conduct and you can only start with your ability to be pure. And that is the wrong place to start. Some of you, I ask those questions, do I this, am I this, do I practice this? And right there you're like, man, that makes me unholy. That makes me far from God. Now I've got to do all of these things before I can come to him, right? That's flip-flopping the whole thing. We start with conduct all the time, and the Bible starts with condition. It's one of the ways I love the way that Paul writes in a lot of the books that he wrote. He always starts with the gospel. He starts with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then gets to, now this is how we live because of this. This is the root system. Your conduct is not the root system in which you receive life. Your condition being changed is where the life is found. And so purity begins whenever you realize that Jesus paid the price for your impurity. That's where it starts. I want to encourage you in that today. So don't think about what you did last night. Think about what Jesus has done. You have to start there. Purity increases as you work together with the Holy Spirit to live as a redeemed child of God. is this process called sanctification, 
where we become more like Jesus, where we become holier and purer, not holier in regards to pride and spiritual pride. I'm, not, I'm talking about genuine. If someone is growing in holiness and that produces an elitist thing, a, a spiritual pride, a, a condescending attitude towards other, other people, that individual is not growing in godly holiness. They're growing in this individualistic holiness, this hierarchical feel, this, this I'm con- condescending other people. That is, not, that is not Jesus. That is not how he acted. Jesus actually came to those who acted that way, and he called them hypocrites. There were these religious leaders called uh, Pharisees. And one day, uh, you can go look at the seven woes that he he talk to them about but in one of them he says woe to you you're like a whitewashed tomb you look all good on the outside but inside of you is dead men's bones which was very very highly offensive he comes against those who are dead uh, inside but yet they have all the proper trappings on the outside he says man you're you're not doing it right and he calls us to be alive on the inside right so That's where purity begins, refinement, sanctification. But James gives us an outline of how to do this. And we just went through these scriptures a few months ago as we were going through the book of James. But I want to end today by reading these scriptures. How do I become pure in heart? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Number one, how do you become pure in heart? You must agree with Jesus. Mr. Randy Robbins, a couple weeks ago uh, at our first Wednesday service, he was up here and he, and he started talking about spiritual warfare. And he talked about the simplicity of what spiritual warfare is and how spiritual warfare is at the core, at the base, it's agreeing with Jesus. It's agreeing with what God says about you, not agreeing with what the enemy says about you, right? There's this core simplistic point that if we start there, we're on the right track. And I think when it comes to be, wanting to become more pure, become pure in heart, the first thing we do is submit ourselves to God, which has to do with agreeing with God. Agree with Jesus. Agree with his word. Agree with his standards. Agree with truth. You have to start there. He goes on, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That speaks to disagree with the devil. It's very simple, huh? Disagree with the devil. We agree with God and we disagree with the enemy. We agree that the fruit of the spirit is the the proper heart, the proper way to live. And we agree that the works of the flesh are not. So we are disagreeing in our heart with these things. This is the the core thing when it comes to repentance. And this is where we're headed. It says this uh, in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you draw near to God? I want to encourage you today. Some of you, you, you feel distant from God. What do I do? Well, I don't have like some new thing to tell you, right? I I didn't come up with a new way to draw closer to God this past week as I was studying. No, the word of God, reading the word of God, spending time in prayer, whether that's in a dark closet by yourself where there's no distractions, whether it's driving in your car, whether it's multiple times throughout the day, whether it's having a sense that God is with you and in every decision you, 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 Bring your heart before him and say, God, would you lead me in this moment? Whatever prayer looks like, there must be a connection with the Father. Prayer, spending time in the word, meditation, slowing down, 
I think coming to church, I think being in small group, I think going to, out to eat with other believers and talking about the things of God is another way that you grow in your faith and you grow in your understanding of God. Did you know that you don't know everything by yourself? But God has put us in a community with other people to help us grow in Christ. It's part of our mission here, to help people know God, grow in Christ, and go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We do that together. But, I mean, that's another way. So the Bible, prayer, uh, fellowship, community, gathering together. It's just some of the places to start. And some of the things, by the way, the well that you will continue to go to. One thing that I've seen is this, and can I be honest? I see people a lot of times, they get saved, they get right with God. Their life is radically changed. Their attitudes, the way that they live their life, the way that they spend their money. I mean, just everything about their life is just different. They go to old friends and old friends are like, dude, you're not the same guy you were six months ago. And they're like, no, I'm, dude, God is. And they begin to throw themselves into the process of God. They begin to, to become more like Jesus. But after a couple of years, after the, the newness wears off, things begin to fade. They begin to kind of go back to the crowds of people, the friends that they had to distance themselves from in order to grow in Christ. And, and again, if, if I could talk about relationships, you would know that my heart is not that everybody does not have friends with people who don't believe in Jesus. I would say the opposite of that. However, I would say that some people are not strong enough in their faith yet to expose themselves to day in, day out environments that begin to attack their faith. They're just, they're just not strong enough yet. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have friends. Some people get really confused with that. I, I do not believe that that's what we're called to do. But there are seasons in our life where we just can't. You can't go back to the old places you used to hang out with where all those things happen. You can't hang out with all those people who, whenever you get around them, you do more than you, you think you, you should, right? You, you go past that line, and you just don't have the strength to say no. You have to, but what happens is people, they begin to get around those people again. And their attitude and their perspective and their reactions and their, all of these things begin to drift back to where it was just a couple of years before. And it can be 10 years. I'm not saying, there's not like a timeline on this. God calls us to be holy and at times there must be a separation from, right? Separation from those things. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Spending time with people can encourage you in your faith, obviously. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Kind of a repeat of Psalms, right? Cleanse your hands and purify your, your hearts. You double-minded in the way that you think. We talked about agree. We talked about disagree. But you know, you know the, the, the way that you do that is by confessing your sins. Confession. Literally saying with your mouth, I was wrong. I repent. God, I agree with you. Right? If that is not something that you do in your life on a regular basis, I want to encourage you today. To begin to confess your sins to God, but also the Bible talks about confessing our faults one to another. There is such power. Remember I just talked about small groups or, or, or eating at a restaurant with friends or, you know, believers. In those moments, you might, you might use those moments, hey guys, I need to just let y'all know something off script, you know. I need to confess something to you guys and let y'all know. Uh, a few years ago had some buddies over the house, and we were hanging out. It was late, and we, you know, just having a good time. And, and um, 
I hadn't seen this guy in a long time, and, and he said, man, I just, I need to say something. And uh, he said, I've been needing to say this for a few months. And he began to confess sin that he had been in for years. None of us knew. Remember the whitewashed tomb thing? He was doing a really good job. And, uh, and you know what happened? We stopped. We prayed. We loved on him. And he walked out of that place different. He walked out of that with the, the, the weight of sin was lifted. There is something powerful about confessing our sin to God first, but then also to people. And the Bible talks about that. You can read that in the book of James as well. Confess our sin. Confession eliminates condemnation and cleanses our hearts. If you're feeling condemnation today, confession is a great place to start. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We talked about poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin. And what does this mean? It basically means to acknowledge your brokenness and need for God. Today, some of you need to do that. To acknowledge your brokenness and need for God. Last scripture, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You want to be exalted? You want to be lifted up? Humble yourself before Jesus. He'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. Is life a process? And are there, hey, look, are there consequences to things that we do? Yes, there are. But God's grace is sufficient to cover those things. And I want to encourage you with that today. If you're in this place and you feel like you're too far gone, you feel like, man, I am not pure in heart and I don't think I'm going to see God. And that's how you feel right now. I know that there's some people that feel like that. You're here today almost as like an appeasement, like, like just like, maybe if I start going to church, maybe if I start watching online, maybe if I start doing these things, God will kind of like maybe crack the door to heaven to me again. I don't know. And I want you, I want you to let you know that, that God's hand is extended to you. His mercy and his grace is extended to you. Whether you're far from God or, or also if you've been a Christian for a long time and you find yourself in a dry season, look, there are men and women all over the word of God that you can read and you will see their life doing this, their relationship with God doing this. But I want to encourage you to stay anchored to Jesus. Stay anchored. Don't walk away. God is not walking away from you. He hasn't moved. The Bible says draw near to him.